0: Welcome to this special episode of Good People Talk, the podcast of the Good People Fund. Our guest is Naomi Eisenberger, co-founder and executive director, who in conversation addresses GPF's response to the coronavirus pandemic, its short and long-term effects on GPF and its community of grantees, and emergency initiatives addressing myriad needs in the field. I'm Glenn Rosencrantz, and I invite you to visit goodpeoplefund.org, or the Good People Fund's Facebook page for more information. But for now, here's our conversation with Naomi. Naomi Eisenberger, thank you for joining your organization's own podcast, Good People Talk, (laughs) first time that you're a guest on your own podcast series.
1: (laughs) It had to happen eventually.
0: How are you doing? How are you coping?
1: Well, Gwen, I have to say that in the many decades that I have been on this earth, I don't think anything compares to what we have all been living through over the last um, seven to eight weeks. I have been through doing this work through tsunamis, through intifadas in Israel, through all kinds of disasters, and nothing compares to what we're seeing now. It's a privilege on one hand to be able to sit in this seat and to try to make some good come out of what is so overwhelmingly bad. By four o'clock in the afternoon, I put my hands over my ears and say, no more. I've got to stop for the time being. The stories are so distressing. You wonder, is is there a limit to the tragedy that surrounds us and i'm sorry to say
0: that there really isn't. You and i were talking earlier today we mentioned that classic starfish story that we all know the moral of which is we can't save the world but we can make small changes along the way that add up to greater impact and i thought that that would be a really good place to start because the starfish story now and that moral is even more relevant
1: within a few weeks of dealing with this it suddenly hit me that if there was anything that the good people fund was made for it circumstances like this although none of us ever envisioned this happening our ability to act nimbly and our focus on you know our our tagline which is you know small actions huge impacts could not be any more significant but there is no one, there is no organization, there is no funder who can resolve the issues that we're now facing and what, what we're going to face yet down the road. We're in a great place. You know, just as we look for um, organizations doing work quietly and below the radar, we're now working to help individuals. People don't realize that a bar of soap today is life-saving. Sure. It isn't just about hygiene. It can be life-saving today. So we're really in our element
0: here. Yeah. I know that there have been a number of new initiatives over the, even over the last day, uh, not to mention the last several weeks that you couldn't have imagined even several months ago.
1: For years, I would joke about um, our secret agents and people would look at me quizzically and, you know, Our agents are people who are on the front lines. Sometimes they're the founders of our organizations that we're supporting, and sometimes they could be a social worker, be a teacher, could be a doctor, people who are on the front lines and are seeing things that otherwise might not be seen. When this all started, I think as an organization, we said we were gonna focus on two things. First of all, primary was to make sure that all of our programs were safe and that they were going to remain whole but also that we would try to help vulnerable populations that might not otherwise get help so through a friend i learned about i learned about the pharmacy staff at a big hospital in new york city here in the suburbs all the communities were raising money to to pay the local restaurants to make meals for the frontline responders, doctors, nurses, emergency uh, medical teams, ambulance personnel, and so forth. But in New York, at this major hospital where the pandemic was raging, almost out of control, was a 240-person staff in the pharmacy. And, you know, pharmacies and hospitals are generally buried somewhere in the bowels of the building. They were as overwhelmed as... The people who were caring for sick individuals, and you know, many of them are running medications up to the floors. And we were connected with somebody uh, that was in management at the pharmacy, and said, "How could we help the staff?" And she said, "You know, it's hard to bring food in unless it's individually packaged." And I said something about, "What about snacks?" Lo and behold, Amazon did not fail us. There was an enormous <laughs> supply of chips and kind bars and all kinds of snacks for this staff of 240. And, you know, the picture that they sent with smiles and signs saying, thank you, told me that that was important. Mm-hmm. It gave them, it gave them recognition for the hard work. They're, you know, they're at risk. They're more at risk than I certainly am sitting here at my desk.
0: Sure. So that
1: was one. Um, I think another great example was a connection that I was able to make with the social worker in the palliative care department at Columbia University, Irving um, Medical Center. I have a personal connection there because our son is on staff at the hospital. But when I connected to the social worker in palliative care, you know, asking what could we do, it wasn't hard for her to share stories with me about people who were on vents, critically ill, many not expected to survive, and the circumstances that they were in. One in particular that really struck me was a 39-year-old man who was the breadwinner in his family. He was on a vent. His wife and two children could not see him and had they, they had no resources. The man was literally had an appointment to meet immigration to get his green card. When he became ill, the wife is then faced: does she identify herself to authorities so that her children could access some kind of help? Um, And there's, you know, I'm not saying anything that nobody hasn't already heard. There's great reticence to do that right now. The fact that we gave this social worker several thousands of dollars worth of Visa gift cards that she could distribute to the families through the doctors and the nurses who were on the floor did an enormous amount of good. They came back to me from that unit and they said, do you think that you could possibly get us three bluetooth speakers because the patients conscious and not on vents or even are on vents you know music is such an important part of healing and comfort so you know it, it took me 2 minutes to find three bluetooth speakers which i had shipped to them and then to find out that one of the patients when he came off the vent turned to the staff and said how music would have, would be important to help him wow and and they could make that happen and you know that was weeks ago today you know the new york times is telling us stories about musicians who are performing concerts that are being um, sent through facetime to patients bedsides we know the importance of music in healing mm-hmm. so those are the kinds of amazing things that. I don't like to say little things. They're not. You know, we've been able to help people pay rent. People with medically fragile children who are now, you know, parents are not working um, and struggling to pay their rent, take a child to a medical center that could be four hours away. There's no end to the ways that we can step in. I think one of the best stories that I, one of the ones that I truly love is Giselle Fetterman, who is the founder of For Good Pittsburgh, which is a new grantee of ours, she's working with a very poor population in Braddock, Pennsylvania. And I reached out to her almost immediately and said, how can we help? And she said, food is going to be an enormous issue in this population. And there are limited resources. And a lot of the people that For Good Pittsburgh helps do not have cars. So they can't access the the county food bank and so i said okay if i gave you a five thousand dollar match matching challenge and i hated to do a match in these times because i know how critically important it is to get help quickly do you think you could get a match and then we could buy gift cards to the local supermarket and she said i'm gonna try and i went to sleep that night I woke up in the morning and I said, how could I do that to her? It's just not fair to make her go out and try to find $5,000 right now. And I was going to call her that morning and I got interrupted. And the next thing I knew, I had an email from her and she said, I've already matched $7,000. Oh, wow. I was so excited. Not 10 days into this, she had raised $21,000, including, of course, our $5,000. Amazing. So, our five thousand grew to twenty one thousand dollars, and those gift cards are being um, handed out to families that are at great risk and cannot find um, sufficient food. There isn't any end to where some obviously some funding and some creativity and change lives
0: there's a, a news clip that we can post to our Facebook or podcast website page that showed Giselle handing out those gift cards that the Good People Fund helped to supply. And she was walking up to a car of somebody who needed one. And Giselle was in her, you know, she was keeping physically distant and she was in her mask. And the person in the car was wearing gloves as he or she took the card. And what struck me was that despite all of the distancing and all of those precautions that we're all taking that somehow seemed to be Separating us. That was a real moment of human connection despite all of those coverings and all of that distance and such. And everything that you described, Naomi, is cutting through this new reality of how we're walking around every day. All of these initiatives uplifting the humanity that is so important to maintain.
1: Yes. (laughs) That, I think, the issue of humanity can easily get lost in this environment. Mm-hmm. But honestly, it's always been what has driven me in this work. I think it's what perhaps makes us stand out a little bit more.
0: Sure. It's it's that small gesture of exactly. handing, a- handing that gift card over to somebody or setting up the Bluetooth speaker on the table next to somebody's hospital bed. These very small, seemingly simplistic acts that remind us we're taking care of each other and we are maintaining our devotion to tikkun olam.
1: Yes. Um, it, you said it. You said it better than I could, right. um, I, but I think you you hit it.
0: Beyond the initiatives that you were, an initiative sounds like a very cold word and I hate to use it, but mm. everybody knows what I'm knows what I mean. But beyond what we were just talking about, part of your day is always reaching out and talking daily with 70 or so grantees of the Good People Fund. Mm -hmm. What, What are you hearing from them?
1: I would say that, you know, when this all began, one of the first things, I can't even remember what day it was back in March. I wrote to each of our groups, those in the U.S. and those in Israel. I wanted them to know that we were here. We were available to talk on the phone to Zoom. We wanted to let them know that we would help them as best as we could as they faced these challenges. You know, there were certain there was certain information that I imparted to the, each of each of the groups from the beginning, and that was that their first responsibility was to to stay in touch with their donor base and their so-called fans to let them know that they are still there, that their work, how they are working to address these challenges. And that means not only the work that they're doing, how they're addressing it now in this new reality, but how they are going to address being able to continue to do their good work. It's hard to worry about almost 70 children. Some of them are more vulnerable than others. You know, I just listened to a webinar this morning that Fidelity Charitable put out, you know, where they say that 80% of all nonprofits you know, only have three months worth of reserves to keep going. That's scary. And I guarantee you that for our organizations, which are all small and, and some very new, that percentage could be higher. It would be very sad if they were not able to continue, and I I would like to hope that they all are able to maintain some. You know, I've I've said to them all, contract, cut back to what you can legitimately handle on the leanest budget possible. You know, some of them I am very, I'm happy to say, were in touch right away, and uh, we were able to step in. And we were able to make some of our grants larger this year than we've had in the past. You know, the one that comes to mind where I feel like we've helped a lot, Anish She in Tel Aviv, which is the program that helps kids at risk, and the laboratory for doing this are secondhand clothing stores. Right. David Baskin and Ilan Kadar are the founders. You know, we've been involved with their work from almost day one. It's wonderful that they have these secondhand clothing stores, one in Tel Aviv and one in Rishon LeZion. Those stores have been responsible for making up tremendous percentage of their budget. And then they're faced with the stores having to close as Israel shut down. Right. And then what do they do? I first sat with David almost immediately and, you know, advised him that perhaps talking to the landlords would be helpful, that you're, you know, be proactive before April 1st comes. Talk to the landlord, say, look, you know what's happening. Can I pay half the rent for April? And then amortize the rest over the rest of the year because they believe that, you know, things will revert back. I'm not going to say to normal because I don't think we know what normal is anymore you know, lo and behold, Israel opened up today. I'm sure that those doors are going to start to open. Their primary concern was to be able to stay in touch with all of the youth that they are helping, because these are kids who have been abandoned their whole lives. And so they worked very hard through Zoom and other means to stay in touch with all of the kids and give them the support that they needed until the time came for them to come back together again. I mean, the kids who are part of the program, earn money in the stores, and that money they were no longer making. I had a conversation with Spirit Club in Maryland, which is a wonderful organization started by Jared Seiner, who the idea is to provide people who are disabled with exercise classes. How many people have gone to the gym? Nobody. So this is a program that is totally reliant upon in-class exercise classes, and so they needed to pivot almost instantly to online classes. And what are they facing? Well, they were facing two issues. Number one, they had about 50 people who were part of the program who did not have a tablet where they could partake of the classes. There's an Amazon Fire tablet for $49.99. As soon as they assured me that all of these people had internet access at home, we made it possible for them to purchase 50 of those tablets. We fund their scholarships for people who cannot afford the program, Um, and when other funders stepped away because they believed that exercise classes for disabled people was not as important as providing food for hungry people, Mm. you know, and as I wrote yesterday or last week, disabled people are at a greater disadvantage than the rest of us. We were able to up our funding to scholarships.
0: It's almost a microcosm, if you will, of some of the challenges that are facing smaller non-profit organizations in general, everything from survival, act, actual survival on the one hand, to a readjustment, a re to address needs within their realms that are emerging right now.
1: I don't think that there's anyone in the nonprofit world who is not going to have to figure out very quickly what they're going to look like post this pandemic. And that's part of the challenge. And we are part of that.
0: Right. The good people. We we ourselves
1: have to think long and hard about what we're going to look like. I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen at the end of this calendar year, which is, you know, has become the time when people donate. How many donors are not going to be able to donate? How many large donors? are feeling the impact of the economics of this. What's good about us, if we have to contract, it means that we take on fewer programs. We're nimble also in that we're a small staff. Right. You know, I'm the only full-time employee. Um, we have a wonderful administrator, Andrea Good, and we have you, Glenn, who helps put us out there. In that respect, we're in a good place. You know, my office is in my home and the rent is really cheap, you know. <laughs> I've always, almost always, at least as long as I've been in this, in the nonprofit world, I have always worked from home. This was not a big adjustment for right. me.
0: the transition
1: was in. Uh, the transition was, there was no transition. The computer and the phone and the iPad are an intergr- have always been an integral part of my workday. What's been harder is putting limits on the workday.
0: Tomorrow or a week from today or in two weeks, We're going to have a lot more stories to tell about how Good People Fund grantees are adjusting, redefining, and surviving, as well as initiatives that the Good People Fund is responding to in that people-to-people way that you described earlier.
1: I know that things are going to evolve in the coming weeks, and I can already see things that are happening that um, may very well direct us in our work going down the road. I think if there's anything that we do know it's this point at this point it's that change is coming. And I appreciate this opportunity to talk to our our community and let them know exactly what's going on here.
0: Naomi, thanks for your time today.
1: You're right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.